midnight hour. Why, hello there. Sorry, I was a few minutes late. It's feeding time for my pets. Digestion. Now, please take a seat next to the fire. We have so many wonderful tales to share, including this one by H.P. Lovecraft. I give you the tree. On a verdant slope of Mount Mainalus in Arcadia, there stands an olive grove about the ruins of a villa. Close by is a tomb, once beautiful with the sublimest sculptures, but now fallen into as great decay as the house. At one end of the tomb, its curious roots, displacing the time-stained blocks of pentalic marble, grows an unnaturally large olive tree of oddly repellent shape, so like to some grotesque man or death-distorted body of a man that the country folk fear to pass it at night when the moon shines faintly through the crooked boughs. Mount Mainolus is a chosen haunt of dreaded Pan, whose queer companions are many and simple swains uh, believe that the tree must have some hideous kinship to these weird Paniski. But an old beekeeper who lives in the neighbouring college told me a different story. Many years ago, when the hillside villa was new and resplendent, there dwelt within it two sculptures, Kalos and Mercedes. From Lydia to Napolis, the beauty of their work was praised, and none dared say that the one excelled the other in skill. The Helmes of Kalos stood in a marble shrine in Corinth, and the palace of the Musides surmounted a pillar in Athens near the Parthenon. All men paid homage to Kalos and Mercedes, and marvelled that no shadow of artistic jealousy cooled the warmth of their brotherly friendship. But though Kalos and Mercedes dwelt in unbroken harmony, their natures were not alike. Whilst Mercedes reveled by night amidst the urban gaieties of Tegea, Kalos would remain at home, stealing away from the sight of his slaves into the cool recesses of the olive grove. There he stood, uh, there he would meditate upon the visions that filled his mind and there devised the forms of beauty which later became immortal in breathing marble. Idle folk, indeed, said that Kalos conversed with the spirits of the grove and that his statues were but images of the fauns and dryads he met there for he patterned his work after no living model. So famous were Kalos and Mercedes that none wondered when the tyrant of Syracuse sent to them uh, deputies to speak of the costly statue of Tyke, which he had, uh, he had planned for his city. 
Of great size and cunning workmanship must the statue be, for it was to be, it was to form a wonder of natures and a, a goal of travellers. Exalted beyond thought would be he whose work should gain acceptance, and for this honour Kalos and Mercedes were invited to compete. Their brotherly love was well known, and the crafty tyrant surmised that each, instead of concealing his work from the other, would offer aid and advice, this charity producing two images of unheard-of beauty, the lovelier of which would eclipse even the dreams of poets. With joy the sculptors hailed the tyrant's offer, so that in the days that followed their slaves heard the ceaseless blows of chisels. Not from each other did Kalos and Mercedes conceal their work, but the sight was for them alone. Saving theirs, no eyes beheld the two divine figures released by skilful blows from the rough blocks that had been had imprisoned them since the world began. At night, as of yore, Musides sought the banquet halls of Tegea, whilst Kalos wandered alone in the olive grove. But as time passed, men observed a want of gaiety in the once sparkling Musides. It was strange, they said, amongst amongst themselves, that depression should thus seize one with so great a chance to win art's loftiest reward. Many months passed, yet in the sour face of Mercedes came nothing of the sharp expectancy which the situation should arouse. Then one day Mercedes spoke of the illness of Kalos, after which none marvelled again at his sadness, since the sculptor's attachment was known to be deep and sacred. Subsequently many went to, the, to visit Kalos and indeed noticed the pallor of his face. But here was about him a happy serenity which made his glance more magical than the glance of Mercedes, who was clearly distracted with anxiety and who pushed aside all the slaves in his eagerness to feed and wait upon his friend with his own hands. Hidden behind heavy curtains stood the two unfinished figures of Teich, little touched of late by the sick man and his faithful attendant. As Kalos grew inexplicably weaker and weaker, despite the ministrations of puzzled, puzzled physicians and of his assiduous friend, he desired to be carried often to the grove which he so loved. There he would ask to be left alone, as if wishing to speak with unseen things. Mercedes ever granted his requests, though his eyes filled with visible tears at the thought that Kalos could could care more for the fauns and the dryads than for him. At last the end drew near and Kalos dis- discoursed of things beyond his this life. Mercedes wit promised him a s- sepulchre of, uh, more lovely than the, the tomb of Morsolus. But Kalos bade him speak no more of the marble glories. Only one wish now haunted the mind of the dying man, that twigs from the certain olive trees in the grove be buried by his resting place, close to his head. And one night, sitting alone in the darkness of the olive grove, Kalos died. Beautiful beyond words was the marble sepulchre, which strict, stricken Musides carved for his beloved friend. 
none but Kalos himself could have fashioned such bass but reliefs wherein were displayed all the splendorous splendors of Elysium. Nor did Musides fail to bury the, close to Kalos' head the olive tricks from the from the grove. As the first violence of Mercedes' grief gave place to resignation, he laboured with diligence upon his figure of Teich. All honour was now his, since the tyrant of Syracuse would have the work of none save him or Kalos. His task proved a vent for his emotion, and he toiled more steadily each day, shunning the gaieties he once had relished. Meanwhile, his evenings were spent beside the tomb of his friend, where a young olive tree had sprung up near the sleeper's head. So swift was the growth of this tree, and so strange was it was its form, that all who beheld it exclaimed in surprise, and Mercedes seemed at once fascinated or impelled. Three years after the death of Kalos, Mercedes dispatched a messenger to the tyrant, and it was whispered in the Agoria at Tegea that the mighty statue was finished. By this time the tree by the tomb had attained amazing proportions, exceeding all other trees of its kind, and sending out a singularly heavy branch uh, above the apartment in which Musides laboured. As many visitors came to view the prodigious tree as to admire the art of the sculptor, so that Musides was seldom alone. But he did not mind the multitude, multitude of guests. In, indeed, he seemed to dread being alone now that his absorbing work was done. The bleak mountain wind sighing through the olive grove and the tomb tree had an uncanny way of forming vaguely atriculate sounds. The sky was dark on the evening that the tyrant's emissaries came to Tegea. It was definitely known that they had come to bear away the great image of Tyke and bring eternal honour to Mercedes. So their reception by the Proxenion was a great warmth. As the night wore on, a violent storm of wind broke over the crest of Maynars, and the men from far Syracuse were glad that they rested snugly in the town. They talked of their illustrious tyrant and of the splendour of his capital and exulted in the glory of the statue with uh, which Musides had brought brought with him. And then the men of Tegea spoke of the goodness of Musides and of the heavy grief for his friend and how not even the coming laurels of art could console him in the absence of Kalos who might have worn those laurels instead. Of the tree which grew by the tomb near the head of Kalos, they also spoke. The wind shrieked more horribly, and both the Syracusans and the Arcadians prayed to Aeolus. In the sunshine of, of the morning of Prixoni, led the tyrant's messengers up the slope of, uh, to the abode of the sculptor. But the night wind had done strange things. Slaves' cries ascended from the scene of desolation, and no more amidst the olive grove rose the gleaming colonnades of that vast hall wherein Musides had dreamed and toiled. Lone and shaken mourned the humble courts and the lower walls, for upon the sumptuous greater 
peristyle had fallen squarely the heavy overhanging bough of the strange new tree, reducing the stately poem in marble with odd completeness to a mound of unsightly ruins. Strangers and Tegeans stood aghast, looking from the wreckage to the great sinister tree whose aspect was so weirdly human and whose roots reached so queerly into the sculpted sepulchre of chaos, and their fear and dismay increased when they searched the fallen apartment, for of the gentle Musides and of the marvellously fashioned image of Tyke, no trace could be discovered. Amid such stupendous ruin only chaos dwelt, and the representatives of two cities left disappointed. Syracusans that they had no statue to bear home, to Gians that they had no artist to crown. However, the Syracusans obtained, after a while, a very splendid statue in Athens, and the Tegeans consoled themselves by erecting in the Agora a marble temple commemorating the gifts, virtues, and brotherly piety of Musides. But the olive grove still stands, as does the tree growing out of the tomb of Kalos, and the old beekeeper told me that sometimes the boughs whisper to one another in the night wind, saying over and over again, Oida, Oida, I know, I know. Let us examine a man's descent into madness, driven by none other than a black cat, as written by Edgar Allan Poe. From the most wild yet most homely narrative which I am about to pen, I neither expect nor solicit belief. Mad indeed would I be to expect it, in in a case where my very senses reject their own evidence. Yet mad am I not... And very surely do I not dream, but tomorrow I die, and today I would unburden my soul. My immediate purpose is to place before the world plainly, succinctly, and without comment, a series of mere household events. In their consequences, these events have terrified, have tortured, have destroyed me. Yet I will not attempt to expound them. To me, they have presented little but horror. To many they will seem less terrible than baroques. Hereafter, perhaps, some intellect may may be found which will reduce my phantasm to the common place. Some intellect more calm, more logical, and far less excitable than my own, which will perceive in the circumstances I detail with awe. Nothing more than an ordinary succession of very natural causes and effects. From my infancy I was noted for the docility and humanity of my disposition. My tenderness of heart was even so conspicuous as to make me the jest of my companions. I was very especially fond of animals and was indulgent by, uh, indulged by my parents with a great variety of pets with which I spent most of my time and never was so happy as when feeding and caressing them. 
This particular particularity of character grew with my growth, and in my manhood, I derived from it one of my principal sources of pleasure. To those who have cherished an affection for a faithful and sagacious dog, I need hardly be at the trouble of explaining the nature or the intensity of the gratification thus derived. There is something in the unselfish and self-sacrificing love of a brute, which goes directly to the heart of him who has had frequent occasion to test the paltry relation, friendship and relationship and gossamer fidelity of mere man. I married early and was happy to find in my wife a disposition not uncongenial with my own, observing my, pa, pa, observing my partiality for domestic pets. She lost no opportunity of procuring those of the most agreeable kind. We had birds, goldfish, a fine dog, rabbits, a small monkey, and a cat. This latter was a remarkably large and beautiful animal, entirely black and sagacious to an astonishing degree. In speaking of his intelligence, my wife, who at heart was not a little tinctured with superstition, made frequent allusion to the ancient popular notion which regarded all black cats as witches in disguise. Not that she was ever serious upon this point, and I mention the matter at, at all for no better reason than that it happens just now to be remembered. Pluto, that was the cat's name, was my favourite pet and playmate. I alone fed him and he attended me wherever I went about the house. It was even with difficulty that I could prevent him from, uh, from following me through the streets. Our friendship lasted in this manner for several years, during which my general temperament and character, through the instrumentality of the fiend intemperance, had, I blush to confess it, experienced a radical alteration for the worst. I grew day by day more moody, more irritable, more regardless of the worst. I grew day by day... The feelings of others. I suffered myself to use intemperate language to my wife. At length, I even offered her personal violence. My pets, of course, were made to feel the change in my disposition. I not only neglected, but ill-used them. For Pluto, however, I still retained sufficient regard to restrain me from maltreating him, as I made no scruple of maltreating the rabbits, the monkey, or even the dog. When my accident, or through affection, they came in my way. But my disease grew upon me, for what disease is like alcohol? And at length even Pluto, who was now becoming old and consequently some, somewhat peevish, even Pluto began to experience the effects of my ill temper. One night, returning home much intoxicated from one of my haunts about town, I fancied that the cat avoided my presence. I seized him. When, in his fright at my violence, he inflicted a slight wound upon my hand with his teeth. The fury of a demon instantly possessed me. I knew myself no longer. My original soul seemed at once to take its flight from my body in a more than fiendish malevolence. Gin nurtured, thrilled every fibre of my frame. I took from my waistcoat pocket a penknife, opened it, grasped the poor beast by the throat and 
deliberately cut one of its eyes from the socket. I blush, I burn, I shudder, while I pen the damnable atrocity. When reason returned with the morning, when I had slept off the fumes of the night's debauch, I experienced a sentiment half of horror, half of remorse for the crime of which I had been guilty. But it was, at best, a feeble and equivocal feeling, and the soul remained untouched. I again plunged into excess and soon drowned in wine all memory of the deed. In the meantime, the cat slowly recovered. The socket of the lost eye presented, it is true, a frightful appearance, but he no longer appeared to suffer any pain. He went about the house as usual, but, as might be expected, fled in extreme terror at my approach. I had so much of my old heart left as to be at first grieved by this evident dislike on the part of the creature which had once so loved me. This feeling soon gave place to irritation, and then came, as if to my final and irrevocable overthrow, the spirit of perverseness. Of this spirit, philosophy takes no account, yet I am no more sure that this that my soul leaves, lives than I am that perverseness in one of the primitive impulses of the human heart, one of the indivisible primary faculties or sentiments which give direction to the character of man, who has not a hundred times found himself committing a, a vile or a silly action for no other reason than because he knows he should not. If we're not a perpetual inclination in the teeth of our best judgment to violate that which is law merely because we understand it to be such. This spirit of perverseness, I say, came to my final overthrow. It was this unfathomable longing of the soul to vex itself, to offer violence to its own nature, to do wrong for the wrong's sake only, that urged me to continue and finally to con consummate the injury I had inflicted upon the unoffending brute. One morning in cool blood, I slipped a noose about its neck and hung it to the limb of a tree, hung it with the tears streaming from my eyes, and with the bitter, bitterest remorse at my heart, hung it because I knew that it had loved me, because I felt it had given me no reason of offence, hung it because I knew that in so doing I was committing a sin, a deadly sin that was so jeopardised my immortal soul as to place it if such a thing were possible, even beyond the reach of the infinite mercy of the most merciful and most terrible God. On the night of the day on which this cruel deed was done, I was aroused from sleep by the cry of fire. The curtains of my bed were, on, were in flames. The whole house was blazing. It was with great difficulty that my wife, a servant, and myself made our escape from the conflagration. The destruction was complete, my entire worldly wealth was swallowed up, and I resigned myself thenceforth to despair. I am, among, I am above the weakness of seeking to establish a sequence of cause and effect between the disaster and the atrocity, but I am de de detailing a chain of, of, of facts and wish not to leave open a possible link in, imperfect. On the day succeeding the fire, I visited the ruins. The walls, with one exception, had fallen in.
This exception was found in a compartment wall, not very thick, which stood about the middle of the house, and again which had rested the head of my bed. The plastering had there, in great measure, resisted the action of the fire, a fact which I attributed to its having been recently spread. About this wall, a, a dense crowd were collected, and many persons seemed to be examining a particular portion of it with very minute and eager attention. The words strange, singular, and other similar expressions excited my curiosity. I approached and saw it as if graven in bust but relief upon the white surface the figure of a gigantic cat. The impression was given with an accuracy truly marvellous. There was a rope about the animal's neck. When I first beheld the apparition, for, for I could scarcely regard it as less, my wonder and my terror were extreme, but at length reflection came to my aid. The cat, I remembered, had been hung in a garden adjacent to the house. Upon the, uh, the alarm of fire, this garden had been immediately filled by the crowd, by someone of whom the animal must have been cut from the tree and thrown through an open window into my chamber. This had probably been done with the view of arousing me from my sleep. The falling of other walls had compressed the victim of my cruelty into the subsidence of the freshly spread plaster, the lime of which, with the flames and the ammonia from the carcass, had been ac accomplished the portraiture as I saw it. Although I thus readily accounted to my reason, if not altogether to my con conscience, for the startling fact just detailed, did not the bless fail to make a deep impression upon my fancy. For months I could not rid myself of the phantasm of the cat, and during this period there came back into my spirit a half-sentiment that seemed, but was not, remorse. I went so far as to regret the loss of the animal, and to look at the, to look about me among the vile haunts which I now habitually frequented. For another pet of the same species and somewhat similar appearance, with which to supply its its place. One night, as I sat half stupefied in the den of more than infamy. My attention was suddenly drawn to some black object reposing upon the head of one of the immense hogsheads of gin or of rum which constituted the chief furniture of the apartment. I had been looking steadily at the top of this hogshead for some minutes, and what now caused me surprise was the fact that I had not sooner perceived the object thereupon. I approached it and touched it with my hand. It was a black cat, a very large one, fully as large as Pluto, and closely resembling him in every respect but one. Pluto had not a white hair upon any portion of his body. This cat had a large, although indefinite, splotch of white, covering nearly the whole region of the breast. Upon my touching him, he immediately arose, purred loudly, rubbed against my hand, and appeared delighted with my notice. This, then, was the very creature of which I was in search. I at once offered to purchase it of the landlord, but this person made no claim to it, knew nothing of it, 
had never seen it before. I continued my caresses, and when I prepared to go home, the animal evinced a disposition to accompany me. I permitted it to do so, occasionally stooping and patting it as I proceeded. When I reached the house, it, it domesticated itself at once and became immediately a great favourite with my wife. For my own part, I soon found a dislike to, to it arising with me. This was just the reverse of what I had anticipated, but I know not how or why it was. Its evident fondness for myself rather disgusted and annoyed. By slow degrees, this, these feelings of disgust and annoyance rose into the bitterness of hatred. I avoided the creature, a certain sense of shame and the remembrance of my former deed of cruelty preventing me from physically abusing it. I did not for some weeks strike, or otherwise violently ill-use it, but gradually, very gradually, I came to look upon it with unutterable loathing and to flee silently from its odious presence as from the breath of a pestilence. What added no doubt to my hatred of the beast was the discovery on the morning after I brought it home that, like Pluto, it also had been deprived of one of its eyes. This circumstance, however, only endeared it to my wife, who, as I have already said, possessed in a high degree that humanity of feelings which had once been my distinguishing trait and the source of many of my simplest and purest pleasures. With my aversion to this cat, however... His partiality for myself seemed to increase. He followed my footsteps with a pertinacity, which it would be difficult to make the reader comprehend. Whenever I had sat, it would crouch beneath my chair or spring upon my knees, covering me with its loathsome caresses. If I arose to walk, it would get between my feet and thus nearly throw me down or, fastening its long and sharp claws in my dress, clamber in this manner to my breast. Such times, although I longed to destroy it with a blow, I was yet withheld from so doing, partly by a memory of my former crime, but chiefly, let, let me confess it at once, my absolute dread of the beast. His dread was not exactly a dread of physical evil, and yet I could be at a loss how otherwise to define it. I am almost ashamed to own, yes, even in this felon's cell, I am almost ashamed to own that the terror and horror with which the animal inspired me had been heightened by one of the merest shimmeries it would be possible to conceive. My wife had called my attention more than once to the character of the mark of white hair of which I have spoken and which constituted the sole visible difference between the strange beast and the one I had destroyed the reader will remember that this mark although large had been originally very in indefinite but by slow degrees degrees nearly imperceptible in which for a long time my reason struggled to reject as fanciful it had at length assumed a rigorous distinctness of outline. It was now the representation of an object that I shudder to name. For this above all I loathed and dreaded and would have rid myself of the monster had I dared. It was now, I say, of the 
image of a hideous, of a ghastly thing, of the gallows. Oh, mournful and terrible engine of horror and of crime, of agony and of death. Now was I indeed wretched beyond the wretchedness of mere humanity, and a brute beast whose fellow I had contemptuously destroyed, a brute beast to work out of, out for me, for me a man, fashioned in the image of the high God, so much of insufferable woe, alas, neither by day nor by night knew I the blessed blessing of rest any more. During the former, the creature left me no moment alone, and in the latter I started hourly from dreams of unutterable fear to find the hot breath of the thing upon my face and its vast weight, an incarnate nightmare that I had no power to shake off, incumbent e eternally upon my heart. Beneath the pressure of torments such as these, the feeble remnant of the good within me succumbed thoughts became my sole intimates, the darkness and most evil of thoughts, the moodiness of my usual temper increased a hatred of all things and of all mankind, while from the sudden, frequent and ungovernable outburst of a fury to which I now blindly abandoned myself, my uh, uncomplaining wife, alas, was the most usual and the most patient of sufferers. One day she accompanied me upon some household errand into the cellar of the old building which our poverty compelled us to inhabit. The cat followed me down the steep stairs and, nearly throwing me headlong, exasperated me to madness, uplifting an axe and forgetting in my wrath the childish dread which had hitherto stayed my hand. I aimed a blow at the animal which, of course, would have proved instantly fatal had it descended as I wished but this blow was arrested by the hand of my wife goaded by the interference into her range more than demoniacal I withdrew my arm from her grasp and buried the axe in her brain she fell dead upon the spot without a groan hideous murder accomplished, I set myself forthwith and with entire deliberation to the task of concealing the body. I knew that I could not remove it from the house, either by day or by night, without the risk of being observed by the neighbours. Many projects entered my mind. At one period I thought of cutting the corpse into minute fragments and destroying them by fire. In another I resolved to dig a grave for it in the floor of the cellar. Again I deliberated about casting it in the well in the yard, about packing it in a box as if merchandise with the usual arrangements, and so getting a porter to take it from the house. Finally I hit upon what I considered a far better expedient than either of these. I determined to wall it up in the cellar, as the monks of the Middle Ages are recorded to have walled up their victims. For a purpose such as this, the cellar was well adapted. Its walls were loosely constructed and had lately been plastered throughout with a rough plaster, which the dampness of the atmosphere had prevented from hardening. Moreover, in one of the walls was a projection caused by a false chimney or fireplace that had been filled up and made to resemble the red of the cellar. 
I made no doubt that I could readily displace the bricks at this point, insert the corpse, and wall the hole up as, a, as before, so that no eye could detect anything suspicious. And in this calculation, I was not de deceived. By means of a crowbar, I easily dislodged the bricks, and having carefully de deposited the body against the inner wall, I popped it in, the, in that position, while... With little trouble, I relayed the whole structure as it originally stood, having procured mortar, sand and hair. With every possible precaution, I prepared a plaster which could not be distinguished from the old, and which this, with this I very carefully went over the new brickwork. When I had finished, I felt satisfied that all was right. The wall did not present the slightest appearance of having been disturbed. The rubbish on the floor was picked up with the minutest care. I looked around triumphantly and said to myself, Here at last, then my labour has not been in vain. My next step was to look for the beast which had been the cause of so much wretchedness, for I had at length firmly resolved to put to death. Had I been able to meet with it at that moment... There could have been no doubt of its fate. But it appeared that the crafty animal had been alarmed at the violence of my previous anger and forbore to present itself in my present mood. It is impossible to describe or to imagine the deep, the blissful sense of relief which the absence of the detested creature occasioned in my bosom not make its appearance during the night, and thus for one night at least, since its introduction into the house, I soundly and tranquilly slept. I slept even with the burden of the murder upon my soul. The second and the third day passed, and still my tormentor came not. Once again I breathed as a free man. The monster in terror had, had fled the premises forever. I should behold it no more. My happiness was supreme. The guilt of my dark deed disturbed me but little. Some few inquiries had been made, but these had been readily answered. Even a search had been instituted. But of course nothing was to be discovered. I looked upon my future fel felicity as secured. Upon the fourth day of the assassination, a party of the police came very unexpectedly into the house and proceeded again to make rigorous investigation of the premises. Secure, however, in the inscrutability of my place of concealment, I felt no embarrassment whatever. The officers made me accompany them in their search. They left no nook or corner unexplored. At length, for the for the third or fourth time they descended into the cellar. I quivered not in a muscle. My heart beat calmly as that of one who slumbers in innocence. I walked the cellar from end to end. I folded my arms upon my bosom. I roamed easily to and fro. The police were thoroughly satisfied and prepared to, to depart. The glee at my heart was too strong to be restrained. I burned to save but one word by way of trumpet and to render doubly their, sure their assurance of my guiltlessness. Gentlemen, I said at last as the party ascended the steps, I delight to have allayed your suspicions. I wish you all health and little more courtesy. 
by the by, gentlemen, this this is a very well-constructed house. In the rapid desire to say something easily, I scarcely knew what I uttered at all. I may say an excellently well-constructed house. These walls... Uh, are you going, gentlemen? These walls are solidly put together. And here, through the mere frenzy of bravado, I rapped heavily with a cane which I held in my hand upon that very portion of the brickwork behind which stood the corpse of the wife of my, of my bosom. But my God shielded... Deliver me from the fangs of the arch fiend. No sooner had the reverberation of my blows sunk into silence than I was answered by a voice from within the tomb, by a cry at first muffled and broken, like the sobbing of a child, then quickly swelling into one long, loud and continuous scream, utterly anomalous and inhuman, a howl, a wailing shriek, half of horror and half of triumph, such a I might have arisen only out of hell, conjointly from the throats of the damned in their agony and of the demons that exult in their damnation. Of my own thoughts, it is folly to speak. Swooning, I staggered to the opposite wall. For one instant, the party upon the stairs remained motionless through extremity of terror and of awe. In the next, a dozen stout arms were toiling at the wall. It fell bodily. The corpse, already greatly decayed and clotted with gore, stood erect before the eyes of the spectators. Upon its head, with red extended mouth and solitary eye of fire, sat the hideous beast whose craft had seduced me into murder and whose informing voice had consigned me to the hangman. I had walled the monster up within the tomb. And now let us hear a tale of a man full of heightened nerves and the horrors his imagination put him through with Saki's The Open Window. My aunt will be down presently, Mr. Nuttall, said a very self-possessed young lady of fifteen. In the meantime, you must try and put up with me. Frampton Nuttall endeavoured to say the correct something which would duly flatter the niece of the moment without unduly discounting the aunt that was to come. Privately, he doubted more than ever whether these formal visits on a succession of total strangers would do much towards the helping of the nerve cure which he was supposed to be undergoing. I know how it will be, his sister had said when he was preparing to migrate to this rural retreat. You will bury yourself down there and not speak to a living soul, and your nerves will be worse than ever from moping. I shall just give you letters of introduction to all the people I know there. Some of them, as far as I can remember, were quite nice. Frampton wondered whether Mrs. Sappleton, the lady to whom he was presenting one of the letters of introduction, came into the nice division. You know me of the people around here, asked the niece, when she judged that they had had sufficient silent communi- communion. 
Hardly a soul, said Frampton. My sister was staying here at the rectory, you know, some four years ago, and she gave me letters of introduction to some of the people here. He made the last statement in a tone of distinct regret. Then you know practically nothing about my aunt, pursued the self-possessed young lady. Not only her name and address, admitted this, the caller. He was wondering whether Mrs. Sappleton was in the married or widowed state. An undefinable something about the room seemed to suggest masculine habitation. Her great tragedy happens just three years ago, said the child. And that would be since your sister's time. A tragedy? asked Frampton. Somehow in this restful country spot, tragedy seemed out of place. You may wonder why we keep that window wide open on an October afternoon, said the niece, indicating a large French window that opened onto a lawn. It is quite warm for this time of year, said Frampton, but has that window got anything to do with the tragedy? Out through that window, three years ago to a day, her husband and her two young brothers went off for their day's shooting. They never came back. Crossing the moor to their favourite snipe shooting ground, they were all three engulfed in a treacherous piece of bog. It had been that dreadful wet summer, you know, and... Places that were safe in other years gave way suddenly without warning. Their bodies were never recovered. That was the dreadful part of it. Here the child's voice lost its self-possessed tone and became falteringly human. Poor aunt always thinks that they will come back someday. They and the little brown spaniel that, that, that was lost with them and walk in at that window just as they used to do. That is why the window is kept open every evening till it is quite dusk. Poor dear aunt, she has often told me how they went out, her husband with his white waterproof coat over his arm, and Ronnie, her youngest brother, singing, Bertie, why do you bound? As he always did to tease her, because she said it got on her nerves. Do you know sometimes on still quiet evenings like this I almost get a creepy feeling that they will walk in through that window? She broke off with a little shudder. It was a relief to Frampton when the aunt bustled into the room with a whirl of apologies for being late in making her appearance. I hope Vera has been amusing you, she said. Yeah, she has been very interesting, said Frampton. I hope you don't mind the open window said Mrs. Sappleton brusquely. My husband and brothers will be home directly from shooting and they always come in this way. They've been out for snipe in the marshes today so they'll make a fine mess over my poor carpets. So like you men folk, isn't it? She rattled on cheerfully about the shooting and the scarcity of birds and the prospects for duck in the winter. To Frampton it was all purely horrible made a desperate but only partially successful effort to turn to the talk on a, to a less ghastly topic. He was conscious that his hostess was giving him only a fragment of her attention, and her eyes were constantly straying past him to the open window and to the lawn beyond. It was certainly an unfortunate coincidence that he should have paid his visit on this tragic anniversary. The doctors agree in ordering me complete rest and absence of mental excitement and avoidance of anything in the nature of violent physical exercise, <laughs> announced Frampton, 
We laboured under the tolerably widespread delusion that total strangers and chance acquaintances are hungry for the least detail of one's ailments and infirmities, their cause and cure. On the matter of diet, they are not so much in agreement, he continued. No, said Mrs. Sappleton, in a voice which only replaced a yawn at the last moment. Then she suddenly brightened into alert attention, but not to what Frampton was saying. "'Here they are at last!' she cried, just in time for tea. "'And don't they look as if they were muddied up to the eyes?' Frampton shivered slightly and turned toward the, the niece with a look intended to convey sympathetic comprehension. The child was starting out through the open window with dazed horror in her eyes. In a chill shock of nameless fear, Frampton swung round in his seat and looked in the same direction. In the deepening twilight, three figures were walking across the lawn towards the window. They all carried guns under their arms, and one of them was additionally burdened with a white coat hung over his shoulders. A tired brown spaniel kept close at their heels. Noiselessly, they neared the house, and then a hoarse young voice chanted out of the dusk, "'I said, Bertie, why do you bound?' Frampton grabbed wildly at his stick and hat. The whole door, the gravel drive and the front gate were dimly noted stages in his headlong retreat. A cyclist coming along the road had to run into the hedge to avoid an imminent collision. "'Here we are, my dear,' said the bearer of the white Macintosh, coming in through the window. "'Fairly muddy, but most of it's dry. Who was that who bolted out as we came up?' "'A most extraordinary man, a Mr. Nuttall.' said Mrs. Sappleton. Could only talk about his illnesses and dashed off without a word of goodbye or apology when you arrived. One would think he had seen a ghost. I expect it was the Spaniel, said the niece calmly. He told me he had a horror of dogs. He was once hunted into a cemetery somewhere on the banks of the Ganges by a pack of parish dogs and had to spend the night in a newly dug grave with the creatures snarling and grinning and foaming just above him. Enough to make anyone lose their nerve. Romance at short notice was her specialty. Ah, the body bags are here. Just drop them anywhere, Igor. What's that? Oh dear, where well, there are plenty more postmen where that one came from. Of course you can keep his cap. Put the, put, put the mailbags down. Not at all. Now, let's see what we have in the body bag today. The first letter is from Anne A. in Michigan. Anne writes, Back in 1972, I was at a party at one of the college houses at the University of Michigan. There was a young girl, 15, I think, who really shouldn't have been there, but she was the younger sister of one of the students. She said she had felt a sort of sudden icy chill, even though it was the middle of summer. She later said it was like someone had wrapped something icy around her. Anyway, she went upstairs to her brother's bedroom to warm up. That's when things went really crazy in the house. 
one of the walls of the house started moving and a, a black shadow approached the girl. Meanwhile, downstairs, posters were spontaneously popping off the walls and falling into a growing pile on the floor. After everything calmed down and returned to some form of normality, the girl wandered back downstairs where she found herself saying these strange words. The drugs and addiction were my fault, and I accept responsibility for that, but I was not that way deep down inside. I want to apologize to everyone involved for what I have done. And what made those words even stranger was that the girl did not do drugs, let alone have an addiction. Her words didn't seem all that strange to the students who lived in the house. Before they moved in, their house had been inhabited by a man with a very serious addiction. He had died of a heroin overdose. I don't know if the ghost had made any other appearances or what happened to the girl after that. Why, thank you, Anne. I guess... That's one way to get the old school spirit. <laughs> and here's one from Greg H. Greg writes, Dear Digger, A few weeks ago you told the story of a lighthouse keeper, and that made me think of a lighthouse off the coast of Fairfield, Connecticut. The lighthouse was built in 1874 to warn ships of a treacherous hidden reef which was already responsible for its fair share of harbour accidents. Anyway, lighthouse keeping is a lonely and desolate job, probably one of the most isolated jobs in existence. There was this lighthouse keeper, Frederick Jordan was his name. It was 1916 and just before Christmas, Jordan was rowing home to see his family and a gale caught him. He fell into the water and he drowned. Ever since then, lighting and Equipment malfunctions in the lighthouse have been blamed on Jordan's spirit, but even more chilling is that keepers of the lighthouse often find the lighthouse logbook open to the day Jordan died. The locals have talked about seeing a pale figure of a man floating above the water, often during storms. Well, Greg, thank you for your letter. I do love a good lighthouse story. Perhaps the ghost of Frederick Jordan is warding ships away from the reef. Remember, if you wish to write to me, you can send your emails to info at iplradio.org.au and address them to the midnight hour. As usual, we will maintain your anonymity by changing your name. White faces and grease paint, mouths, big floppy shoes. Clowns make you laugh. They can be scary to many. It's called chorophobia, the fear of clowns. Let me tell you a story most of you probably have heard before, but it is based on a true story. It's called Creepy Clown Statue. A couple left for a dinner party, leaving the babysitter to watch over their two children. It was the babysitter's first time working for the family, and she was surprised by the overwhelming clown motif throughout the house, including multiple statues in the living room. While the children were playing there, the babysitter became aware of one of the life-size clown statues placed in a rocking chair. 
It was extremely lifelike, and its gaze seemed focused on the children. She could have sworn she saw the eyes move each time the children moved in the room. Finally, the babysitter became concerned by its presence enough to call the parents. She spoke with the mum and asked if she could put it in another room while she was there. She explained how the clown was really creeping her out. Upon hearing the babysitter's description of a clown, the mother ordered the babysitter to grab the children, immediately leave the house, and head for the house next door. The babysitter grabbed each child by the hand and ran out the front door and to the neighbour's house. The neighbours, an elderly couple, ushered the three of them inside and locked the door. The elderly woman was on the phone with the mother, who reassured her that the police were on their way. Apparently a mentally ill neighbour had been threatening to murder the family he had dressed as a clown and was sitting in the living room, just waiting for the moment. And now... All illegal immigrants might not be what they seem. Dr. Quiller finds this out the hard way in this week's radio drama, Mystery Theatre's All Unregistered Aliens. Enjoy. at home. Home is where the heart is. Be it ever so humble, there's no place like home. Home. In a single word, there is contained such warmth, such security, such completeness. Say it in a hundred languages, its meaning remains unchanged. Home. The place we all come from. And at the same time, the place we spend our lives searching for. To some of us, home is the one place we can never return to. Well, what happened to your brother? Please, Doctor. Where did he go? He's he's gone away. But he was lying here just a moment ago. He he couldn't have disappeared just like that. I told you where he has gone. He has gone home. But I just him. He has gone home. Home? You keep saying home. Well, where is home? Our mystery drama, All Unregistered Aliens, was written especially for the Mystery Theater by Victoria Dan and stars Anne Williams. It is sponsored in part by True Value Hardware Stores and Buick Motor Division. I'll be back shortly with Act One. What is the force that drives us to seek our roots? You hear so much talk about such things these days. It seems as if all of America is out there finding themselves. 
What is the power that can suddenly compel a person to give up material success and return to their old neighborhood? What is so magical about one's place of birth, anyhow? That is, if there is anything magic in the word home at all. Oh, now, now, sweetheart. Oh, now, that was just a little vaccination. Uh, remember, please, Mrs. Rodriguez, bring the other children in for their shots by the end of the week. Oh, and, and be sure to tell your neighbors it's free. The city will pay for inoculation. Oh, thank goodness it's lunchtime. Inez, is there anyone else waiting to see me? Who? Oh, sure, I uh, certainly can't keep him waiting, can I? Dr. Anaculler? Yes, uh, what can I do for you, Officer McKeegan? Uh, that's Lieutenant McKeegan. Kind of young to be a doctor, aren't you? What is it you wanted to see me about, Lieutenant? Well, I uh, came to welcome you to the neighborhood. Oh, how very nice of you. Well, after all, it's an admirable thing you're doing here. Is it? Yeah, setting up a free clinic in a neighborhood like this. A neighborhood like what? Well, Doctor, let's face it. This isn't exactly paradise. That would depend on your point of view. Oh, come on. You don't belong here. I happen to have been born here. Yeah. No kidding. I was lucky, Lieutenant. I went to college, med school, on a scholarship. You know, you could be making a lot of money in the suburbs. <laughs> I thought you came here to welcome me to this neighborhood. Uh, no, I did. Uh... Doctor, you know, it's always good community relations to uh, have citizens cooperate with the police. Especially if they happen to be in the medical profession. Cooperate how? Well, for example, uh, wasn't your last patient Nadia Rodriguez? Well, she brought her baby here for a vaccination. Why are you so interested? Well, I couldn't care less about Mrs. Rodriguez's baby. On the other hand, uh, didn't you treat her husband Carlos last week? Who? Carlos Rodriguez. Uh, Carlos? Uh, a stab wound. Don't you remember? No, I can't seem to recall. Uh, sure. But I'd uh, just appreciate your reporting um, interesting injuries to the precinct. I am a doctor, not a policeman. Uh, you're aware of the problem of street gangs, aren't you? You do your job, Lieutenant, and I'll do mine. And gang fights aren't the only problem we got here, Doctor. You, you know... Do you know how many illegal aliens pass through this neighborhood in just one month? Illegal aliens? Yeah, yeah. They come into the country, stowed away in freight compartments of foreign ships. There are thousands of them. No passport, no entry permit. And they're here to stay. Now, you uh, must treat some of these people every day. You're asking me to report on my patients, Lieutenant? The uh, word is cooperate with the authority. Well, I'd like to thank you for coming by, Lieutenant. Our conversation has been... Most enlightening. Are you uh, going to have lunch now, Doctor? Yes, I am. Oh, well, it's a great little cafe right across the street run by a fat old guy named Stefan. I know. He may... He's my uncle. Oh. Well, look, I was wondering if you... Goodbye, Lieutenant. You know what I think... I think you're not eating enough, Anna. Mm, I'm not hungry. Yeah. You're not still upset about the visit from Officer McKeegan. But how did you... 
What's ever gone on in this neighborhood I didn't know, eh, little one? You know what he said, Uncle Stefan? What? He said that I didn't belong here. Have you ever heard anything so ridiculous? Uncle? Have you? Why did you suddenly decide to come back, Anna? This is my home. I grew up here. You couldn't wait to leave. As soon as you graduated high school, what made you suddenly decide to come back? I thought you were happy uptown in that fancy office with the carpet and the paintings. Well, I was, but... But what? I suddenly... Yes? Oh, I can't explain it. I just knew I had to come back. Why? Because I was... I was... Needed. Yes, yes. I'm unkind not to tell you that in the few weeks you have been back, you, you've done only good. You are needed here. I'm proud of my niece, Anna. That's what my head says. But my heart says my brother's child should have the best. What kind of men can you meet here? You should have a house with a lawn and trees and flower boxes. The swings for the children. <laughs> oh, Uncle. Oh, what in heaven's name? Oh, more glasses again. That poor bus boy. I don't want to hurt his feelings. Uh, Mr. Tuller, I am so very sorry for this. Uh, yes, sir, never, never mind, Eli. It's, it's all right. I am not to be discharged? No, Eli. <laughs> Just clean up the broken pieces. Yes, you're very kind, Mr. Quiller. Really, very uh, kind. Just a minute, Eli. Where is your cousin? I thought this was supposed to be his shift. I, I do not know. It isn't right, Eli, taking his place all the time. You work hard enough as it is. Well, he's young, Mr. Quiller. He, he wants to be with his friends. I, I try to tell him they're bad company, but he does not listen. <sighs> so, uh, what what were we talking about, Anna? Still doing it, aren't you, Uncle Stefan? Eh? What? One man, Salvation Army. Taking in refugees, giving them jobs. Hey, now, now, little one. Don't think I'm a charity war. No? <laughs> But just look at that man, Eli. I've never seen such a down-and-out expression on anyone. Yes, well, things were pretty bad for him in his old country. Anyhow, just so you don't think I'm running a charity ward, you ought to see the mural Eli's doing for my office. You know, he's quite an artist. Why don't you come oh, back? Oh, look at the time. I'd better get back to the clinic. Well, you really should see his painting. Oh, oh, maybe later, Uncle. Maybe later. Why don't you go now? Sure, I can lock up. See you tomorrow. Hmm. Well, let's see. Where did I put it? Who could that be at the back door? Oh, just a minute. All right, I'm coming. You should use the regular entrance in front. Doctor. Yes, you're Eli, the busboy, but who? It is my cousin. Please, Doctor, can you help him? Of course, bring him in. What happened? Please, please, where should I put him? On on the bed, there. Easy, easy now, easy. He's been shot. 
I'm sorry. Well, now, keep still. Keep still. Uh, look, uh, bring me the solution to that bottle by the sink. <laughs> of course, of course. It hurts. It hurts bad. Now, please, don't try to talk. Doctor, how bad is it? It's bad. Is he going to... What is your cousin's name? Cleo. I told him not to go around with those boys, but she wouldn't listen to me. Where are you, Eli? No, no, I'm, I'm right here, Cleo. I'm sorry about the night. We went to the warehouse. That said it was an initiation. Something went wrong. Eli, there was a man, an old man, he shot at us. We ran. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. It's all right. No, no, no. It was bad what we were going to do. I didn't understand that. I only wanted to, to, to like me. Never mind. I just wanted to belong. I know, Cleo. I know. I, I can't do anything else for him. It's too late. Cleo. I want to go home. This is home. No, I want to go back. Back to a real home. But Cleo, you... I want to die on my own soil. No, no, listen to me. You are not going to die. I am. You know I am. Don't let me die here. Please. I want to go home. Doctor. Could you leave us alone now, please? But I... I... You said there was nothing more you could do for him. Yes. I'll, uh, I'll be right outside. Cleo, can you hear me? I want to go home. Go home. Send me home. To go home, you must listen for the wind. Yes. The wind... Wind will carry me home. Think of the wind. Here I Where am I? I'm lost. Find the wind, cousin. Find the wind. Wait. I hear it. I hear the wind. I'm going home, Ella. The wind is taking me home. Goodbye, cousin. Goodbye. Forever. Dr. Quiller? Your cousin? Is he... Cleo is... gone. I'm very sorry. I'd better go in and... Where is he? I already told you. You said he was dead. I said he was gone. How? He was dying. He didn't have the strength to move. He... He found the strength. Well, that's impossible. What's happened to him? I told you he's gone. Well, where did he go? Where? Tell me. Where did he go? Where? He has gone home, Doctor. He has gone home. Well, that's a simple enough answer. Of course, you and I know that if Dr. Anna Quiller believes that, that settles that. 
we wouldn't have a second act. And consider this. I, for one, am rather curious about where Cleo went myself. I intend to find out where exactly home is when we return in just a few minutes with Act Two. There are many people in this world who do not like to become involved in the lives of others around them. And, after all, there is something to be said for the uneventful but also safe habit of minding one's own business. But Dr. Anna Quiller, who has returned to her childhood slum neighborhood to open a clinic, has chosen the path of curiosity and concern. A young man, fatally injured in a warehouse prank, has disappeared from her examination room. And his older cousin calmly remarks that the young man has simply gone home. But how could he have gone anywhere? He was dying from that bullet wound. I, I must go now. No. no. I want answers. That was a mortal wound. The damage was irreparable. That boy had only moments to live. Yes, you are right. He had only moments to live. Then how did he leave? How? You, you said he went home. He was carried, of course. Oh, carried by whom? By the wind. What? That is, friends. Yes, several friends came in through the alley and... No, you, no you're lying. No. None of this makes any sense. Why were you in such a hurry to get rid of Cleo? Do not speak that way. It is ugly. Oh. I understand everything now. Do you? If your cousin had died in my presence, I would have to sign a death certificate. Death certificate? Oh, don't play dumb. You know what I'm driving at. But I do not. You had to get rid of your cousin's body because I would have had to call the police. And that would mean trouble, wouldn't it? Oh, I, I do not. Uh, you I, certainly I... do understand. You and Cleo are both in this country illegally. Do you deny it? No, I do not deny it. If the police came here and found Cleo's body, it would be over for you. You'd be deported. It would be over, but not the way you believe. Oh, don't you see? It's no use. The authorities will find out as soon as you try to bury him. He will not be buried. What? Cleo will not be buried. He is no longer uh, in this city. But you said he was home. He is. You said he had been carried home. To his real home. Not to the dirty little room in his adopted land. But home. True home. Wait, wait just a minute. Back home to where he was born. His native soil. You sent him home? Literally? Like on a boat? Uh, well... But that uh, is what you mean, isn't it? Yes. That is what I mean, Doctor. Uh, now, I, I must go. No, but wait. We, we still have to talk. About what? I mean, I mean, your cousin was involved in the shooting. I, I, I have to tell... Tell who? The police are going to want to know. Well, why must you tell anyone what happened here tonight? But... It is hard for me to hide my pain. Without Cleo, I am alone. So alone. But I, I must go on... So I ask you for your help. But I have to inform the... When I first brought Cleo here, I was not sure if he would die. If there was any hope, I wanted to help him. The people in the neighborhood, they say, 
You can trust the doctor. She is okay. Believe me, I don't want to get you in trouble, but... So, you will not say anything. I trust you still. that one coffee black to go. Well, if it isn't Dr. Quiller. <laughs> Good morning. Uh, is it? Uh, the usual with the Danish, Harry. You uh, look like you didn't get much sleep last night, Doctor. Oh, you're mistaken. Thank you, Harry. Oh, uh, listen, could you wait a minute? I uh, want to ask you something. Lieutenant, I've got a room full of people at the clinic. Yeah, well, this will only take a minute. All right. What is it? Did you uh, <clears throat> have any late night visitors last night? Is that any of your business? <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. I'm here at the clinic, and uh, that is my business. No, I didn't have any late-night visitors at the clinic, Lieutenant. So, uh, about uh, what time did you close up? Oh, uh, the usual time. Which is? 9.30. Uh, really? Uh, what happened to the kid with a bullet wound? Uh... I don't know what you're talking about. Hey, now, didn't we have another discussion like this once? <laughs> no, Doctor. There was a warehouse robbery last night. The watchman said he got one of the kids. Who did you treat late last night? Nobody. <sighs> you, uh, you really think you're doing a noble thing, don't you? Well, you're not doing these kids a favor, you know. All you do is glue them together so they can go right out again and commit worse crimes. Spare me the lectures, McKeegan. You tell me something, Doc. Huh? I'm just trying to do my job in a neighborhood like this, and it isn't easy. Why are you making me the heavy, huh? I'm sorry. I, I, I don't mean to snap at you. In a way, you're right, but in a way, you're also wrong. You can go around doing the arresting. That's your job. My job is to help whoever walks through the door of that clinic. What was the name of the kid the night watchman shot? Now, officer, how would I know? What are you doing here so early in the day, Anna? Well, I have to talk to you, Uncle Stefan. You did not sleep last night. <sighs> really shows, doesn't it? <laughs> Come, we talk better in my office. All right, we talk. Uncle. Come, sit in the soft chair here. Uncle, this wall. Oh, <laughs> you like the mural Eli's painting, eh? I, I never saw anything quite like it. Oh, well, art is a matter of taste. I, I don't understand what it's supposed to be. Well, it's supposed to be a picture. A picture of what? Landscape. Oh, sure is weird. The colors it uses, it's almost creepy. It makes you feel afraid? No, no, not afraid, just strange. <laughs> Can't explain it. Oh, listen, Uncle, I I've got to ask your advice. About poor Cleo? Oh, boy, you do know everything, don't you? So young, but so foolish, so reckless. Eli said he sent Cleo's body home. That would be right. Uncle, all my life you've helped people that came through here. You never talked about it. But I'm curious. I, I want to know about these people. What people? <laughs> you sound like me talking to Lieutenant McKeegan, Uncle. 
Look, what country did Cleo and Eli come from? Country? No, I'm, I'm curious. I know it's somewhere in Eastern Europe, but I can't place the accent. I wouldn't exactly call it a country. A state? No. A place can be pretty small and still be a country. Tell me the name. Melagania. Have you ever heard of it? Melagania? Can't say it rings a bell. I'll have to look it up in my old high school atlas. Oh, you won't find it there. Why not? Well, you see, they uh, just granted it sovereignty. Oh. What's troubling you? Well, that's what I really wanted to talk to you about. I treated Cleo in my office last night. Where else would the poor boy have gone? Well, I can't forget the picture of him. So young, so beyond hope. Lying on that bed in my clinic. Anna, you are a doctor. Death is not new to you. It never stops hurting. No matter how many times you see it. And this time, I can't explain it. it I... I felt an even deeper hurt. Because he was so young. Perhaps that's it. Uncle Stefan, I don't know what to do. I've got Lieutenant McKeegan following me around. (laughs) Is that so bad? I hear he's a college man. I don't mean that, Uncle. He's following me, trying to get me to talk about Cleo. I know. Oh, you know everything. But do you know how I can get out of this? Sooner or later, McKeegan's going to trip me up and I'll accidentally say something. Don't always act as if you had something to hide, little one. That is why Lieutenant suspects you. You're probably right. Is something wrong? Melgania is the name, you say? Yes. That mural. Something very peaceful about that sky. So blue. Unreal kind of blue, like, like the water in the Mediterranean. Is that supposed to be Melgania? Yes. And uh, I, I will be truthful. I, I, I worry about you. You work, work, you never have any fun. I, I joked before about McKeegan, but there is a danger. In the way he is right. But Uncle Stefan, he said... One day, a very dangerous person could walk into the clinic. Maybe the type who doesn't trust doctors. I'm not afraid. You're like a fish out of water here. Only because you keep telling me I am. But I'm not. What do you really want to do here? I want to help. A doctor helps anywhere. It has to be here. What is so special about here? What's the matter, Uncle? Why are you acting this way? I only want to... To what? Protect you. Oh, Uncle. Protect me from what? From... From... From what? Once you become involved, there will be no turning back. Uncle, you're not making any sense. Your life will never be the same again. Uncle Stefan, I don't understand what you're trying to say. I help immigrants. Why not? I was one myself. Anyone comes to my door, they say, help me. I say yes. No one do I turn away. Why are you talking in riddles? They need food, a place to stay, a job. Okay, I help them. Most of them, they're in the country without papers. They come from Russia, from Hungary, Romania. Some I don't ask, I don't know. But Eli and Cleo, they're different. How is that? They're 
not human. Oh, oh now, Bill. They are not human because they come from Melgania. What are you saying? Anna, Melgania is not another country. It is another world. You're kidding, aren't you? I'm serious. Melgania exists, but not on Earth. Now, just wait a minute. Did he say what we think he said? Another world? But, of course, it can only happen on this program. After all, our listeners have become very open-minded. Another country, another world. What does it matter? To the refugee in a foreign land, isn't the feeling of strangeness the same? I'll be back in a moment with Act Three. Give me your tired, your poor. The inscription on the Statue of Liberty begins. More than any other country in the world, America has remained a haven for a world of immigrants. But is it conceivable that our reputation as a land of opportunity is more widespread than we would normally believe? Maybe in worlds beyond this one, people have heard the call. Perhaps Melganians are one example. Uncle Stefan, that's absurd. How can Eli be from uh, another world? Is it so impossible? Yes. Why? Because, uh, because it is, that's all. Melganians look human, but they aren't. You don't expect me to believe any of this, do you? There's one difference between Melganians and humans. When they die, their bodies disintegrate almost right away. They what? Their bodies disappear. Where did you get that old wife's tale? You know why you could not sleep last night? It was because you knew something very strange had happened to Cleo's body. It, it wasn't really strange. You cannot even explain how Cleo was gone so quickly. Well, Eli said some friends came and, and then... But you didn't believe him, did you? No. Not at first. But, but the more I thought about you it... You did not believe it. Because there are certain instincts that tell us something is not so. All right. Maybe I didn't believe him. But I couldn't think of another explanation. I just gave one to you. Little one, there are powers you know nothing about. Oh, hey, it can't be ten o'clock already. Anna, you must listen to me. Look, Uncle Stefan, I am in no mood for the old mumbo-jumbo about the forces that be. Anna, you did not just decide to come back here to this neighborhood. You were summoned. Uncle, I, I really don't have time for the... I say you were summoned. By whom? I... I don't know. Oh, well, when you find out, let me know. Meanwhile, I've got to get back to work. Dr. Quiller. Eli, I have a question to ask you. Oh, please, please, please come inside. Would you like a glass of water? Eli, I don't want anything. 
Oh. I just want to ask, what have you been telling my uncle? Mr. Quiller, I tell him nothing. You've been using Uncle Stefan. Using? Don't pretend you don't understand. What kind of nonsense is this about Malgania? You know about Malgania? Don't look so surprised. He told me about it. You know? I think he really believes that Malgania is another world. But it is. Oh, is that a fact? You are mocking me. You used me, too, with Cleo. You are not to say such things. Why not? They're true, aren't they? I was not afraid of the police. All Cleo asked for was the wind, the wind on which to ride home. If a man should die before his time, if a man should die away from home, let him listen for the wind. Let him find the winds of home, and he shall be carried back again to his rest. You, you really believe that, don't you? Why shouldn't I? It is true. If Cleo couldn't wait to go home, why did you leave in the first place? Why, why does anyone leave a homeland? Why did your people come to America? Because they were persecuted. That's yes, well, it is the same all over. I go where I am allowed to paint the things I wish to paint, not what a high council tells me I must. You uh, really believe you come from another planet, don't you? No. Ah, oh, we're getting somewhere. No, a planet is on the same plane as your Earth. My world is here, but in another, um, you would call it dimension. Oh, boy. I thought you understood at first, but but you do not. Eli, I think you would enjoy talking to a friend of mine who helps in matters such as... No, no, no. No more help. Where was the help we needed when we first came here? Help from others who have gone before us. There are others like you? They were to be here, waiting to help us. But Uncle Stefan helped you. Yes, he is kind, but he is not one of us. What happened to them? Why did they desert us? Oh, well, wait a minute. Why are you looking at me like that? You are here to help me. Oh, now, hold on. Yes. Yes. Your eyes. What about my eyes? I see it in your eyes. Yes. I don't know what you see, but you see wrong. I, I just came here to you tell you... You came here to tell me, Anna, that I, I have a friend. A new friend. I was talking about my uncle. That's why I came here. You can't go around telling stories about... You are my new friend. I mean, about coming from another world and bodies disintegrating. You don't think anyone would believe that. Yes, yes. You will help me. No, I can't. You must help me. Help you? It is so strange and new here, Anna. It is it is so lonely. Back in Melgania, I was brave. I was strong. But this world, it is, it is so alien. It's so gray, so vast, so, so terrifying. It turned me from a man into a child. What am I supposed to do to help you? There is a door between our worlds. Those who passed through it promised they would make a home for the others who would one day also travel through the door. Well, speaking of doors, I think it's time I was leaving. But those who came before Cleo and me, they were not here. They must perhaps be dead. Goodbye, Eli. No, 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 wait. Where are you going? You need help, all right, Eli, but from a different kind of doctor. No, 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 please, listen. 
I must explain to you. You must understand. Oh, let's let, let go of my arm. No, no. You are the only one who can understand. You are the only one who can help me. Why won't you believe me? Why won't you listen to the truth? You're hurting my arm. There is a Malgenia. There is another world. No, it's just a delusion. It's impossible. There can't be any such places. Can it be so frightening, the truth? Can it be so horrible? I don't want to talk about this anymore. Now let me go. What do you know of loneliness? In years... We are the same age, but half my life I am in a cell without windows to see the colors of life. No sound of another voice. You were in prison? Yes, and my only crime is to paint what is in my heart. But without sunlight, the heart becomes old and withered. The years go by, and one day I am no longer brave or strong. And they let me go at last. Because they have won. Inside, I am only gray and empty. You were in jail? Yes, for 15 years. Oh, I, I remember the good Malaganya. Oh, how it was before the evil ones had such power. Maybe one day it will be beautiful again. But not for many lifetimes. My lifetime must be spent here. Look at me, Anna. No. I am only asking you to be my friend. To help me understand about this new world. Look at me. At my eyes. They tell the truth. Can't be. Can it be you see, Melgenia? No. No, I don't see anything. Is that what your heart tells you? Is that what my touch tells you? Why are you doing this to me? I don't understand. Tell me now I am wrong. Tell me now that you do not believe I, me. I, Tell me and I will never again bother you, Anna. I believe you. But why? Why do I believe you? You will be my friend, Anna. Lila. I will be your friend. Uh, say, Mr. Quiller, I think I'll have another one of those great sandwiches today. Yeah, of course, Lieutenant of the King. It's my pleasure. Well, Uncle Stefan, I've got to talk. Oh. Oh, Doctor. How are you? Well, you look a bit upset. Oh, no, not at all, Lieutenant. Not at all. I was just... And I hurried to get my lunch. Hey, I'm glad I ran into you. I uh, wanted to ask you some questions, and I... Questions? About, about what? Uh, this busboy working for your uncle. Uh, what's his name? Uh, Eli? What about Eli? Uh, never mind, then I take care of this. Here, a napkin for your sandwich, Lieutenant McKeegan. <clears throat> I tell you about Eli. Hmm? He's a refugee from the old country. Oh, is that right? Yes. Uh, yes, he's from the old country. Well, uh... I don't believe he has any papers. He does not have any papers. Uncle! But that is because he is political prisoner in the old country. He escapes with help of underground. Hey, 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 I'm not a hard-hearted guy, Mr. Quiller. Now, I don't want to send somebody back to one of those totalitarian states where they're going to get tortured, but... Look. The law is the law, and you won't bend it, right? <sighs> well, yeah, that's right. 
As I recall, Lieutenant, if an alien has family in this country, authorities tend to be more lenient. Oh, come on, come on. That guy doesn't have any relatives here. Ah, but you're wrong. I am my nephew's legal guardian. Your nephew? That guy Eli is your nephew? He is nephew of Anna's mother, my sister-in-law. Uh, doctor, is that true? Um, my uncle does not lie, Lieutenant. Ah, well, this uh, makes the situation different. It does? Yeah, I mean, he's a relative of yours, and I... Uh, uh, you what? Uh, oh, I'm not such a bad guy, Doc. I mean, legally, there are ways to get around. Well, what I'm saying is, I can bend the rules sometimes, too. You will not wrap up my sandwich, will you, Mr. Quiller? I, uh, I'd better be going. You believe me? Well, let's put it this way, Doc. I believe you. But one day... One day what? One of these days... <laughs> you're gonna run out of cousins. <laughs> he believed me, Uncle? I suppose he wanted to believe you. Yes, but I lied. I feel terrible. You didn't lie. Oh, come on, Uncle Stefan. Okay, so we lied about Eli being your cousin, but... But what? We don't know that for sure, do we? Wait a minute. On the other hand, your mother never said she didn't have a sister. Who knows? Maybe he really is your cousin. Uncle, what are you saying? You always assumed that your mother and my brother came from the same country. But they did. No. Your father and I met your mother when she came into this city. Alone. Not a friend in the world. She talked about a door. We didn't understand then. When she died, I decided to let that be the end of it. But the call of the blood is too strong. You came back to help one of your own. You mean that I... And you will help, Eli. And maybe one day, others will come through that door. My mother was from Melkania? But, Anna, you must have known it all the time. as they say, really thicker than water? Was that the force driving Anna Quiller back to her old neighborhood from the beginning? Or do you believe that there is no place called Melgania and Stefan and Anna are victims of an incredible hoax in the long run? Does it really matter where anybody comes from? I'll be back shortly. People believe what they want to believe? Or perhaps there is a greater truth that the eyes will not accept, yet the heart knows must be. We credit logic with the mind, but what about the logic of that inner self? For in the end, do we not usually choose to act with the heart 
and not with the head. Our cast included Ann Williams, Court Benson, and Earl Hammond. The entire production was under the direction of Hyman Brown. This is E.G. Marshall inviting you to return to our mystery theater for another adventure in the macabre. Until next time, pleasant dreams. story. This one is written by Ambrose Beers and tells the tale of a man who wakes after having been ill for some time to find himself in a strange wilderness, an inhabitant of Carcosa. For there be diverse sorts of death, somewhere in the body remaineth, and in some it vanisheth quite away spirit. This commonly occurreth only in solitude, such is God's will, and none seeing the end we say the man is lost or gone on a long journey, which indeed he hath. For sometimes it hath happened in sight of many, as abundant testimony soweth. In one kind of death the spirit also dieth, and this is this have been known to do while yet the body was in vigour for many years. Sometimes, as is veritably attested, it dieth with the body, but after a season it raised upon again in that place where the body did decay. Pondering these words of Hali, whom God rest, and questioning their full meaning as one who, having an intimidation, yet doubts if there be some uh, something behind other than that which he has discerned. I noted not whither I had strayed until a, a sudden chill wind striking my face revived in me a sense of my surroundings. I observed with astonishment that everything seemed unfamiliar. On every side of me stretched a bleak and desolate expanse of plain, covered with a tall overgrowth of seargrass, which rustled and whistled in the autumn wind with heaven knows what mysterious and quieting suggestion. Protruded at long interviews above it, stood strangely shaped and sombre coloured rocks which seemed to have an understanding with one another and to exchange looks of uncomfortable significance as if they had reared their heads to watch the issue of some foreseen event. A few blasted trees here and there appeared as leaders in this malevolent conspiracy of silent expectation. The day, I thought, must be far advanced 
though the sun was invisible, and although the sensible that the air was raw and chill, my consciousness of the fact was rather mental than physical. I had no feeling of discomfort. Over all the dismal landscape, a canopy of low, lead-coloured clouds hung like a visible course. In all this, there was a, a menace and a portent, a hint of evil and an intima, intimation of doom. Bird, beast or insect, there was none. The wind sighed in the bare branches of the dead trees and the grey grass bent to whisper its dread secret to the earth. But no other sound nor motion broke the awful repose of that dismal place. I observed in the herbage a number of weather-worn stones, evidently shaped with tools. They were broken, covered with moss and half-sunken in the earth. Some lay prostrate, some leaned at various angles, none was vertical. They were obviously headstones of graves, though the graves themselves no longer existed as either mounds or depressions. The years had levelled all. Scattered here and there were massive blocks, showed where some pompous tomb or ambitious monument had once flung its feeble defiance at oblivion. So old seemed these relics, these vestiges of vanity and memorials of affection and piety. So battered and worn and stained, so neglected, deserted, forgotten the place, that I could not help thinking myself the discoverer of the burial ground of a prehistoric race of men whose very name was long extinct. Filled with these reflections, I was... I was for some time heedless of the sequence of my own experiences, but soon I thought, how came I hither? A moment's reflection seemed to make this all clear and explain at the same time, though in a disquieting way, the singular character with which my fancy had invested all that I saw or heard. I was ill. I remembered now that I had been prostrated by a sudden fever and that my family had told me that in my periods of delirium I had constantly cried out for liberty and air and had been held in bed to prevent my escape out of doors. Now I had eluded the vigilance of my attendants and had wandered hither too. To where? I could not conjecture. Clearly I was at, the, at a considerable distance from the city where I dwelt, the ancient and famous city of Carcosa. No signs of human life were anywhere visible nor audible. No rising smoke, no watchdog's bark, no lowing of cattle, no shouts of children at play. Nothing but the dismal burial place with its air of mystery and dread due to my own dis, dis, disordered brain. Was I not becoming again delirious there, there beyond human aid? Was it not indeed at all an illusion of my madness? called aloud the names of my wives and sons, reached out my hands in search of theirs, even as I walked among the, the crumbling stones and in the withered grass. The noise behind me caused me to turn about. A wild animal, a lynx, was approaching. The thought came to me, if I break down here in the desert, if the fever returned and I fail, this beast will be at my throat. I sprang toward it, shouting. It trotted tranquilly by 
within a, a hand's breadth of me and disappeared behind a rock. A moment later, a man's head appeared to rise out of the ground a short distance away. He was ascending the farther slope of a low hill whose crest was hardly to be distinguished from the general level. His whole figure soon came into view against the background of grey cloud. He was half naked, half clad in skins. His hair was unkempt, his beard long and ragged. In one hand he carried a bow and arrow. The other held a blazing torch with a long trail of black smoke. He walked slowly and with caution, as if he feared falling into some open grave concealed by the tall grass. This strange apparition surprised but did not alarm, and taking such a course as to intercept him, I met him almost face to face, accosting him with the familiar salutation, God keep you! gave no heed, nor did he arrest his pace. Good stranger, I continued, I am ill and lost. Direct me, I beseech you, to Carcosa. And broke into a barbarous chant in an unknown tongue, passing on and away. An owl on the branch of a decayed tree hooted dismally, and was answered by another in the distance. Looking upward, I saw through a sudden rift in the clouds, Aldebaran and the Hyades, in all this there was a hint of night, the lynx, the man with the torch, the owl. Yet I saw, I saw even the stars in the absence of the darkness. I saw, but was apparently not seen nor heard. Under what awful spell did I exist? I seated myself at the root of a great tree, seriously to consider what it, what it were best to do. But I was mad, I could no longer doubt yet recognised a ground of doubt in the conviction. Of fever I had no trace. I had, with all a sense of exhilaration and vigour, altogether unknown to me. A feeling of mental and physical exaltation. My senses seemed all alert. I could feel the air as a ponderous substance. I could hear the silence great root of the giant tree against whose trunk I leaned as I sat and held enclosed in its grasp a slab of stone, a part of which protruded into a recess formed by another root. The stone was thus partly protected from the weather, though greatly decomposed. Its edges were worn round, its corners eaten away, its surface deeply furrowed and scaled. Glittering particles of mica were visible in the earth about it, vestiges of its decomposition. This stone had apparently marked the grave out of which the tree had sprung ages ago. The tree's exacting roots had robbed the grave and made the stone a prisoner. A sudden wind pushed down dry leaves and twigs from the uppermost face of the stone. I saw the low relief letters of an inscription and bent to read it. God in heaven, my name in full, the date of my birth, the date of my death. A level shaft of light illuminated the whole side of the tree as I sprang to my feet in terror. The sun was rising in the rosy east. I stood between the tree and his broad red disc. No shadow darkened the trunk. A chorus of howling wolves saluted the dawn. I saw them sitting on their haunches, singly and in groups on the summits of irregular mounds and tumuli filling a half of my, de my desert prospect and extending to the horizon. 
and then I knew that these were ruins of the ancient and famous city of Carcosa. Such are the facts imparted to the medium payrolls by the spirit Hoseib Allah Robardin. Stories on tonight's episode of the Midnight Hour included The Dream by H.P. Lovecraft, The Black Cat by Edgar Allan Poe, The Open Window by Saki, Urban Legend, The Clown Statue, Mystery Theatre's radio drama, All Unregistered Aliens, written by Victoria Dan and starring Anne Williams, Court Benson and Earl Hammond. And an inhabitant of Carosa by Ambrose Pierce. Special thanks to our listeners, Anne A. and Greg H., for their letters. If you wish to write to me, please send an email to info at iplradio.org.au and put Midnight Hour in the subject line. As always, your name will be changed to preserve your anonymity. We also invite any paranormal investigators or anybody who has experienced any encounters with the unknown to be interviewed on the radio show. We can interview live, in the studio, or by Zoom. That brings us to the end of our show this evening. I want to thank you for joining me. Next week I may not be here as I will be judging the Perth Horror Film Festival but I will be back the following week. Until then, just a gentle reminder, as you are retiring tonight, don't forget to say goodnight to the creature under your bed. Creatures need love, too. <laughs> this has been an IPL Radio broadcast. Coming to you from Rockingham, IPL Radio.